Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. The number one myth that's being perpetuated in, in all media throughout the world is that somehow the Russians specifically have a political preference. Uh, when they interfere, they don't interfere on behalf of another candidate because they're trying to support a certain candidate to get in, into power or, or to dethrone another candidate. So the whole supply chain is built on on just-in-time principle. Um, now, if you start disrupting that, maybe even, I don't know, two or three uh, suppliers back into the whole production system, you are disrupting the whole supply chain for not just one company, but for multiple companies, because they might use the same supplier. Well, well our first mistake was that we didn't contact RAS until we were almost completed, until we had almost completed the tenant improvements. We, the, when we first signed our lease, um, the building was horrible. It was had been used by the sheriffs as a training and testing site. All that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Adam Dara is the Director of Intelligence for Vigilante ATI. He is a former Russian specialist and political analyst for the U.S. government and holds both a bachelor and master's degree in Russian language and literature. Adam Darrow, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. It's an honor to be here, man. Excited to talk. Oh, yeah. This is a, a very exciting topic for me. We're going to talk about protecting the polls, election security. There's much more to that headline, and we're going to get into that right now. But first, let's, give, let's just give you a little quick background on your street creds, because you are a person that has direct source information on this topic. Tell us about your background without revealing too much. Yeah, no, happy to. So I was uh, part of the, I was a Russia and Russian specialist in the United States government and the Intel community uh, in the lead up to 2016 and, and through 2016 uh, and about a year and a half, almost two years into the Trump administration. And so this was a very hot topic. This is what I spent most of my time doing uh, in the federal government, which is you know trying to figure out, you know, very simply, what's Russia doing? Why are they doing it? And what does it mean? for for us you know uh, so what what can we tell the executive branch to inform them of, of what's going on uh and so i, I did that for uh, a little over eight years uh and my background academically is also in russia the russian language and, and russia the, the country and history so um yeah that's it's it's been a it's an eternally fascinating topic uh, it's never ending uh as far as i'm concerned there's always something new to learn and uh, really excited to maybe take apart and offer just a slight you know, maybe difference and way of looking at what's been going on. So clearly you walk the walk, you talk the talk. Here's my first question. Dispel a myth about this topic that most people probably don't know. Yeah. And I want to make clear, Chuck, you know, I'm not picking on anyone. I, I, I'm in the camp that I, I believe in America. <laughs> I believe in the American population. I don't buy the narrative, even if it's a narrative that from a political camp that I happen to agree with that, you know, the other side is, is quote unquote, stupid or, or uninformed. You know, uh, I think Americans are very well informed, maybe, maybe too much. But uh, the number one myth that's being perpetuated in, in all media throughout the world is that somehow the Russians specifically have a political preference. Uh, when they interfere, they don't interfere on behalf of another candidate because they're trying to support a certain candidate to get in, into power or, or to dethrone another candidate. So I want to be clear up front. In my opinion, Russia does not and has not ever had a political preference when it comes to our elections. Well, I agree. That's my read. Uh, you know, just going to source material and kind of reading between the lines. I've always kind of thought that. 
tell me a little bit about the cybersecurity activity. Is it is it the same as 2016? Is it changed? What's going on? Uh, Chuck, it's changed a, a, a lot. So in the lead up to 2016, we saw a lot of activity on social media. We saw a lot of activity uh, with these with these so-called troll farms that were uh, were, were springing up and and and, and supporting uh, these loosely supporting these and directly supporting the you know the effort to flood social media with nonsense. Um, that level of activity has been declining. Uh, in the run up to the 2018 midterms, for example, there just wasn't the same level of activity. Uh, that we saw in the 2016 and, and coming into 2020, uh, Chuck, um, I don't know what's happening behind the scenes in the in the in the spy world uh, anymore. But as far as like the the overt presence of the wide scale, you know, use of social media to interfere in the same way they did in 2016, that those levels are just not near the same as they were. Because to your point, they kind of uh, started it and then uh, went to get coffee. And said we're doing it to ourselves. Yeah, they've they've in my opinion, from what I see, it's it's almost like they've handed it off they've handed off those things to either to partner intelligence, you know, like minded intelligence, you know, partnerships, uh, you know, allies, let's call them, uh, who are unified in the in their in their desire to, you know, destabilize America socially and politically. Uh, or they've sitting back and they're saying, Well, I mean, America's kind of turned in against itself, unless there's going to be some kind of October surprise from the Russians or from a Russian surrogate, I've just not seen the same level of activity as we saw before. Certainly, that's good news about the upcoming election. I do believe, however, their main objective is to divide us as a society, to cause trouble, to put out a meme so my neighbor Tina calls up screaming at me because I liked it on Facebook. (laughs) And, you know, that's what's going on here. And that is very subversive. And, you know, in my opinion, if they keep doing that for 20 more years, they're just going to walk in here. We're all going to be playing Bella Likas instead of guitars one day. I think their objective is to divide and conquer. Yeah. Well, number one, the balalaika is beautiful. So, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not so bad. But uh, no, so no, you're very, you're, you're right, Chuck, uh, as far as, you know, I don't know about conquering us, but dividing us to keep us distracted is, is very important to them. Uh, it's important to all of our adversaries. The more we're concerned on internal politics, the less we're go- they their judgment is the less we'll be concerned about what's going on in, in their country. Um, with, with Russia specifically, I've always viewed 2016 and beyond as as revenge for what they perceive has been NATO encroachment uh, and our and our um, orchestrating in their minds these colored revolutions uh, in the former Soviet space. Um, and what really pushed Putin over the edge, in my opinion, to really make it clear that. Uh, he's no longer going to tolerate us, quote unquote, meddling. Again, this is their perspective. I'm not defending it because uh, I don't agree with it. But, um, the, you know, 2011, 2012, there was a presidential election in Russia, 2011. There were mass, excuse me, a, a legislative election, 2011 into 2012, presidential election. And there were mass protests. And, and, and I think this was Putin's breaking point with us, uh, where he finally decided, and he's known to have said, like, how would you like us doing this in, out of an embassy in your country, right? M- messing with our, political system. You know, since then, I think they've been gearing up to be very open about it in 2016. And so what we saw in 2016, in my opinion, was Putin's revenge and putting a finger in our eye and saying, see how easy it is? See how easy it is to keep you guys distracted? And we did. We're still at each other's throats. They've basically handed off that operation because, you know, now we've dug in in our political camps, right? We've dug in. Uh, and we're just getting deeper and deeper and deeper in the trenches uh, in our political uh, camps here. So, 
um, whoever, whichever FSB, SVR, GRU brainchild, whosever brainchild this was, is retired somewhere on a very tropical island. They've handed it off. We're doing it to ourselves now, which, Chuck, is very heartbreaking. America's a great country. We're a great people. We're resilient. We're, we're feisty. And so they, they've taken all these great Americanisms and these American characteristics of us being feisty, uh, skeptical, um, you know, and, and just turn this into a weakness. And I, that, that breaks my heart. Well, I agree 100%. Now, that's a brilliant insight that we're doing it to ourselves. I, I hadn't realized it had, it had flipped to that position. Now, here's what I worry about. Obviously, you've been paying attention. You're in the intelligence community. You're doing your job. You know what's going on. Is it to the point where we're so distracted that it's that this distraction has encroached into the intelligence community and the intelligence community is caught up in it? We've seen some signs of that. And they're not paying as close attention as they used to to what the Russians or the Chinese or, our, let's just say, our adversaries are doing. This is where I think if it tips that way, we have a much more serious problem. I agree. And I want to make clear, like there, there are plenty of patriotic Americans on both sides of the aisle in the intelligence community. Um, I, 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 you know, I did see, you know, there was some consternation when President-elect Trump did win. There was a lot of consternation within the intelligence community based largely on the dossier. And, and that, that has been debunked. I don't know how many times we have to say this. Like, you know, President Trump did not do those things in the dossier, uh, you know, but, you know, so there was consternation. And you also got to make the distinction, you know, there's a different breed of intelligence analyst or intelligence uh, community member who leaks to the press, right? Um, you know, I'm no longer in the intelligence community, so, you know, I, I don't have the, the, the direct connections anymore. And, and I wouldn't leak anyway. It's not something that, you know, so, so again, 99% of the intelligence community is going to stay silent. They're going to be their silent warriors doing their job. I do fear, however, you know, humans are humans. And, uh, you know, that, that creep from the outside, let's call it the creep from the real world, does make its way into our hallways in the intelligence community. And, and you do see camps forming. I, I saw camps forming after the election of, of President Trump. Uh, you know, and, and so, yeah, I think, you know, my, my hope is, is that, you know, that, you know, my, my comrades, <laughs> my fellow, my fellow, uh, family members in the intelligence community, you know, are, are still going to, at the end of the day, and I believe they'll do the right thing, but, you know, you can't help but think about it because of what we read in the paper and intelligence sources, intelligence sources, intelligence sources, you know, that's again, like those are leakers. Those are not, and then those are props, um, you know, officials, you know, that, that, that are not maybe intelligence members, but are, you know, in an intelligence community role as a political appointee. So it's a complicated landscape, but I do fear that that will creep into our intelligence. I, I saw that a little bit in the run-up to the election, but um, I'd like to say that, you know, we're better than that. That's <laughs> fingers crossed. You run me through a lot of things here that made my mind think about a lot of stuff. I'm going to come back to election <laughs> security and I'm going to define election security as not worrying about the ones and zeros in online voting, not worrying about mail-in ballots, not worrying about, you know, stealing ballot boxes. You know, that's a traditional election security issue. It's really about influencing our mindset. That is the far greater danger than altering some sort of voting role, isn't it? Yes. And, and, I, and I really want to just reiterate, that's exactly the only way they can tamper with our elections is because America's so decentralized and we're so independently freedom-minded that each state has its own procedure. Each county has its own procedure, right? So there is no uniform voting method. 
which if you're going to influence an election with the ones and zeros, that's what you do. Okay, there's only one voting method. So we just got to go in there, boop, 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 you know, do one, you know, change the ones and zeros and we can mess with the whole flipping country. Right. So that, that's a, your, your, it's a very astute comment, Chuck. They, so what's next? Okay. Well, we can't really get to them ones and zeros wise. So let's just lean on open doors. Let's throw, you know, jet fuel on a simmering social or political issue, take both sides of that issue and then disseminate it out. And then we'll sit back and watch. Now, Chuck, they sit back and watch metrics in real time. They know how each of their misinformation or disinformation articles, campaigns, what have you, they sit back and watch it in real time. And they, you know, they're bureaucrats just like, you know, like our bureaucrats here. They're rewarded, they're incentivized based on metrics, right? You know, show impact, demonstrate impact. And so the, the Russian bureaucratic equivalent of an analyst back in, you know, wherever they're sitting is sitting back going, okay, well, I tweeted this and this. I took both sides of the issue under different aliases. I took extreme positions. And now they're going to sit back and see how it plays. Does it get picked up by media? Does it get picked up by, you know, who picks it up in the media? Who retweets it? Who shares this link? Like they sit back and they go, okay, well, that didn't work. So let's try this angle. Okay. So yeah, it, it, they, they have metrics. They monitor the metrics and they, they find out what works and they go with that. It's really, really frustrating, <laughs> but they're very good. Adam Dara, excellent, excellent information, election security, interference, more importantly, societal interference, really. And uh, I, I really have opened my eyes to a lot of different things and I hope people pay attention to this. Thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. And let's do some more of this. Let's uh, let's stay in touch on this, uh, on this subject. I'll, I'll keep you to that, Chuck. Thanks for having me on. Bijorn Hartong, CPP, is the Global Risk Engineering Practice Leader in Marine and Security and Principal Risk Engineer at Zurich Insurance. Bijorn, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Welcome to you, Chuck. Today's topic is cargo theft supply chain crime. Tell me something that the average person might not know about this topic that's, that's eye-opening. Criminals, they build up their supply chain or they make use of the legitimate supply chain to steal products also to move products uh, through the normal supply chain. Now, this whole COVID situation disrupted every supply chain for normal companies, so it also did for criminal organizations. Um, into the case that where they couldn't get hold of products because they weren't available for them, or they couldn't move their stolen products because the normal supply chain wasn't functioning. So yes, there's a decline in, in thefts, I think in the first three to four months, but after that, they bounced back and realized that the new supply chains gave them more opportunities because people were working in unknown situations, uh, which they could exploit easier than the previous setup. So I think if you will look at the year end, um, they will actually have stolen more than the previous years. Very interesting. Now, how much of this is, let's call it organized crime or crime rings, and how much of this is insider? I would think you'd need a lot of insider information to understand routes, or maybe they just see a truck and say, hey, let's grab that one. I think organized crime is insider crime. My point of view, if you want to operate this business model as a, as a true commercial person, you need to have intelligence where to find the product that you're after. And for that, you have to have insiders. Um, I don't think there are a lot of criminals currently just standing beside the road and thinking, oh, I like that one. Let's let's rob that truck. Um, I'm of the opinion that the most thefts still occur because people know exactly what is going to be when and where. Um, and those are the largest hit. 
if you have small hits of two or three boxes beside the road, that's the typical non-organized criminal. But organized crime, they know where to get it and, and how. From a security point of view or a supply chain security point of view, actually it has proven to be easier to train a logistics person on security than it is to train a security person on logistics. I would think, with today's technology especially, that everything has a GPS on, GPS tag on it. You can't lose a thing because with all the technology, there's no reason to have something open that you don't know about. But that's not really the case. There's really not as much technology in, in supply chain security as I, as I thought. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, there's technology in supply chain uh, that is in order to track and trace shipments. Uh, but it's more from a logistics point of view. The security aspect is uh, there's not that much technology technology used in it, and uh, and GPS, yeah, you can find it everywhere. You make it fit in uh, in, in shipments or even carton sizes, and the amount of uh, GPS trackers you need still makes it very costly. It's not that often used. Give me an example of the supply chain as it's going to relate specifically to COVID nineteen in the future. Take an, as an example the production of the. Uh, the vaccines for the COVID-19. They don't all of a sudden have a vaccine for everybody. So who's going to get it first? Uh, are people willing to pay to get the vaccine? And as long as people are willing to pay for the vaccine, that's a that's a momentum for criminals to say, oh, I'll, I'll go after the original ones. Or if I know how the original one looks like, I'll make another one. So that's something which worries me. Because the, the, if, you, if you look into detail a bit more, the whole logistics world, is not fit to move the amount of volume which is needed for the COVID vaccine because it has to be moved in a freezer or a fridge. So from a temperature point of view, those supply chains are relatively small. They're currently used for pharmaceutical and some other products, but not to carry 7 billion vaccines extra. So, I mean, if you are Dr. Evil, (laughs) it could be something which might be a marketing. Either steal the real one or make a fake one. Now, you said something earlier at the opening that there's basically low risk. This is a part I don't quite understand. You could be stealing millions of dollars worth of cargo. Why is there low risk involved in it? Just lack of prosecution? First of all, it's it's a lack of interest or law enforcement. And that's mainly due to the fact that you don't really know where it happened. Within supply chains, freight moves. You never really know where the freight was stolen. There's some exceptions, of course, but in general, you have no real idea where it was stolen. So which law enforcement agency do you have to involve? Which city, which country? Second of it, it's mainly then if there is a loss, it's insured. There's no real harm done to people. Um, it does so. It doesn't involve drugs, human trafficking, or uh, counterfeit in most cases. So from that point of view, it's not really sexy uh, for law enforcement to work on cargo crime. And in a lot of cases, uh, countries in the past, there was no real code to report cargo crime. So theft from a vehicle was reported as a burglary. And if there are no statistics, uh, that means politicians don't take action because it's not existing. And what we've seen in the last years that uh, organizations as uh, ASAS and, and TAPA have been um, making it clear to the governments involved uh, what actually is at stake when you disrupt supply chains. And it's not just the theft, the item which has gone missing, but the item which has gone missing is supposed to go somewhere, either goes into an next supply chain or it goes into a production facility. These all have disruptions. And all these disruptions, actually you have to multiply between 5 to 10 
times the actual amount of cost. So if you lose $1 in theft, the, the impact on the, on the economy will be five to 10 times more. Uh, and ever since companies or associations have been collecting data and proving what's going on and how criminals target the supply chain, you see that uh, it becomes uh, more interesting for politicians also to react, which leads to law enforcement uh, actions. But so far, as a criminal, if you get caught, you might get caught for burglary, which is uh, you won't really go to a long time to jail or prison for going yeah, having committed burglary. I'm fascinated by your comment about the disruption. So we all know that there wasn't any toilet paper for six months here in America. That was yeah. a, that was a very big deal. And I kept scratching my head saying, are people stealing it? Is it a manufacturing issue? It finally got resolved, right? So let me ask you this. What I'm concerned about is not just the disruption in the supply chain, let's say economically. To your point, $1 could cost you $10. Are we at a point with COVID where it's possible that disrupting the supply chain for a particular product could disrupt not the economic trickle down, but the the manufacturing. So, for example, if uh, everybody at eyeglasses factories caught COVID and the bad guys stole all the eyeglasses, listen, the world would be in a serious problem, wouldn't it? We can't read and we can't act if we have no eyeglasses. I don't know if I phrased that right, but does that make yeah. sense? I I think we could we could tip other things with this if we're not careful. Yeah, and and particularly if you look at the uh, the developments that we've seen in the last few years in logistics, where they've been trying to cut out all the additional costs in the supply chain uh, by taking out additional stock, by improving lead times. So the whole supply chain is built on on just-in-time principle. Um, now, if you start disrupting that, maybe even, I don't know, two or three flyers back into the whole production system, you are disrupting the whole supply chain for not just one company, but for multiple companies, because they might use the same supplier. Recently, in one article I read, uh, just-in-time should probably be uh, transferred to just-in-case, um, where you should be able to deliver, you have to have some sort of maybe spare stock or, or some some general stock conditions in your supply chain to create some time that you could. But indeed, if certain factories are shut down or certain raw materials aren't supplied, can have an impact on much more than just the financial part of our, of our livelihood. The supply chain is systemic. It's all tied together. And to your point, if you yes. interrupt uh, the manufacture and distribution of copper, for, let's say, that's going to trickle down into all kinds of things. Uh, certain food supply chains uh are problematic if they're disrupted. Do you think with COVID-19 and the current civil unrest around the world, and it is around the world, by the way, it's not just the United States, do you think we're reaching a new place in security where we need to look at supply chain security differently? I, I don't think this is a sustainable model the way it's running right now. Like you said, we, we need to be not just in time, but we need backup for it. Yeah. I think it's it's going beyond supply chain security. I, I think it, it comes into the, to the direction of... Uh, business interruption models or business continuity systems within companies and supply chain and supply chain security would just be a tool for that. Uh, I think, and we, we actually see also now within logistics, we see that uh, several companies or several industries actually are rethinking or revamping their supply chain model and, and wondering why most of the production is done in one country in the world. If that should change, and if they might have to shift production closer to their to the country, so they're not that dependent on on air freight or sea freight capacity. Well, it just proves how really interconnected the entire world is, and how how dependent we are on each other. What keeps you up at night? What are you concerned about 
is there something emerging that we should be looking at more closely in the supply chain uh, security field? I think what keeps security people up, or people in supply chain security, is that uh, this whole uh, change as a result of the COVID-19 situation where people are remodeling their supply chains is that they will start implementing new supply chains uh, where they are not that experienced. Um, so they might uh, change uh, shipping model. Uh, instead of air, they go to ocean. They might have different countries as they have moved their production facilities. Uh, and all of that is uh, basically unknown for a lot of the people because the operating model that they had had been working and was tested. Now, all of these new situations are tricky. Because anything new means somebody else, that would be the criminal, is also looking at your new supply chain and trying to figure out how they could get products out of it because they, of course, are looking to set up a market again. So that's something which keeps me and I think a lot of other people awake. Uh, how fast will we be able to catch up again with the criminals? Because at one point, they will have a step ahead of us because sometimes they move faster and they are better financed. Excellent, excellent information. Jorn Hartung, thank you for coming on Security Manager and Highlights, my friend. And uh, check in in a few months. Keep us posted because I think, I think this is an emerging issue that we need to pay close attention to. Okay, great. Thanks, Jorn. Leslie Heimoff is an attorney specializing in juvenile law and child welfare and is the executive director at the Children's Law Center of California. Leslie, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Thank you. Today, we're going to speak about how you used RAS Consulting Services to transition your nonprofit organization from a government-secured facility to a private, basically unsecured facility, where you needed to reinvent your entire security model. Tell us how that process started. So, yes, CLC's offices were uh, primarily located in the Children's Courthouse in, here in Los Angeles County. We were there for almost 25 years um, and had outgrown the space had rented additional office space in a corporate location nearby, and were again facing the need to expand uh, because our staff had grown. And at the same time that we realized we were too crowded in the courthouse space, an opportunity came to move into a building that was located on the same property as the courthouse, but was a privately owned freestanding uh, building where we would be the sole tenant. That was very appealing to us. And as they say in real estate, right, it's location, location, location. Um, the fact that our staff would all be able to walk to the courthouse was a huge benefit. And being able to create a work environment um, that spoke to our culture to the, and to our job responsibilities and the related stress and challenges that go with the work, it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. But it did, as you note, um, create some security challenges, which we had never had to be responsible for or even think about prior to that time. When the Children's Law Center was located inside the courthouse, you had the protection and screening of the government services. When you moved to the private facility, I would assume you had to really change your access control mentality because in your business, it's very, very important to make sure you understand exactly who's coming and going in that facility where there's children involved. Tell me about those challenges. You're right. We do have to be very careful about who comes and goes. Um, and who enters our building. And so that is one of the areas that RAS Watch was very, or RAS was very helpful to us um, in helping us choose a, an integrated security system where 
everything from burglar alarm to employee access to visitor access to um, you know the key cards that swipe to tell us who's in the building, who's not in the building, um, and and where we have staff located at any given time was very important to both our internal security, as you noted, the security of our child clients, but also to be prepared to deal with things like natural disasters or um, crisis situations that would come up unexpectedly in the heat of the moment. Um, to be able to keep track of everyone in the building and know that people are safe was very important as well. As a nonprofit um, and as a private entity, it was up to us to determine what type of um, protocols or security procedures we needed to put in place, which was, again, one of the reasons that we needed an outside consultant. Um, we have a lot of expertise with regard to representing children and advocacy and family well-being, but no expertise with regard to security um, and all of the related issues that go with that. Leslie, looking back on the entire process, give us some ideas of what you might have done differently had you known what you know today about the project. Well, well, our first mistake was that we didn't contact RIS until we were almost completed, until we had almost completed the tenant improvements. We, the, when we first signed our lease, um, the building was horrible. It was, had been used by the sheriffs as a training and testing site. So it was giant cavernous rooms with cubicles everywhere, um, very dark. There was some water issues I mean, it was weak. So we had to gut it and, re and renovate the entire place. And we didn't begin to think about security until we were, as I said, probably 80% through with the renovation, which we learned was a big mistake because so much wiring and conduit and whatnot has to be put in the walls and the ceilings. Um, so that was the first lesson that we learned as uh, novices to the sole tenant experience and not being able to rely on somebody else. So from a timing perspective, um, it's important to contact your security professional at the earliest possible moment rather than later on in the game in terms because it's more expensive to make those changes, of course, after you've already built walls and ceilings and all of that. Um, we were able to work around that though and, and did ultimately, you know, install all the proper equipment in terms of security cameras and, and all the access uh, entry points and all of that. Um, I think probably what motivated us to reach out to Ryan was internal discussions about what type of security personnel we needed on site. You know, as we've said a couple of times now, we were accustomed to being inside of a courthouse, which meant that there was sheriffs everywhere. There's bailiffs and sheriffs and court security, and they're all armed. Um, and they provide a certain level of comfort to the people who work there to know that if there is a dangerous situation, that there are people there that can handle it. And that because there is are, there are metal detectors and the like, um, it's very difficult to bring a weapon, for example, into a courthouse. Um, that was not our situation. And so we had to make a big decision about what type of security personnel we needed on site 24 seven, only certain hours of the day, how, how that would all be arranged. Um, and so that was what motivated our, our initial contact. And then we quickly learned that there were a whole host of things we hadn't thought of um, that we needed to integrate. And that was where RAS was so, so helpful. 
So at the end of the day, what's your, what's your takeaway? Do you feel now that you own the security model, and, and you do because you helped design it, do you feel uh, more confident? Do you feel more secure? We feel that we have taken every measure we can take and that we've created the work environment that we want for our staff um, and for our clients. And I, I think it's silly to be, right, we can't be, no one can be overconfident because we live in a world where anything can happen. Um, and it can happen in a courthouse, it can happen in a private business, it can happen on the street, at home. Um, but we do know that we have eyes on our on our facility and on our people in a way that is supportive and that we it have is, quick access to help ours that we not create that a situation crisis where a client might be mistaken. Um, knock on wood, we haven't had to take advantage sort. of any of that um, and have been safe um, and secure in the three years that we've now been in this building. Um, and we're always, it's, a, it's an ever-evolving process. We make changes over time. We make adjustments as we all learn and RES has been really great about working with us as different things come up. We had a, a situation not too long ago, pre-COVID, but not that long ago, where one of our staff was out in the community and just by chance had parked her car and was about to walk uh, to visit a client and there was a shooting and she tragically witnessed a man being shot. He, he died at the scene, I believe, um, and that was very terrifying for her, of course, um, and and frightening to a lot of our staff. And within a few days, uh, Ryan and his team put together a training for our staff who are out in the community on a daily basis to remind them of certain red flags and, and um, precautions that they could take and things that they should do so that they would either avoid situations like that or where they couldn't avoid it or where they cannot avoid it that they would be prepared to act quickly and with a level head. I mean, fortunately, this employee did both of those things just by her instinct. Um, but having protocols, policies, um, sort of practice in place for our staff is very important. And RIS was really fantastic in helping us respond very quickly. Let's say hi, off of the Children's Law Center of California. Very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thanks for having me.